1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. Now, there are ver varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empired by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And this is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Um, I am uh, Scott's little brother. And uh, how many of you have uh, little brothers? You are blessed people. <laughs> I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, God gives little brothers to help sanctify you, <laughs> to, uh, to teach you patience, self-control, and my favorite, long-suffering. <laughs> so on behalf of little brothers everywhere, you're welcome. Um, so uh, something you should know about me is I'm, I'm a little bit competitive. And uh, I have uh, been listening to the, the series on the Holy Spirit so far. And as I've been listening to these, these sermons by, by Scott and by Nigel, where is Nigel at? I've not met him yet. Patrolling the streets. Well, so I've, I've been listening to these, to these sermons, and I've, I've been listening to them. I, I've thought to myself, I can do better. Um, not in terms of content. Not in terms of content. Content was, was rock solid. Content was excellent. Okay. I'm talking about duration of sermon. Um, Scott averages is about 45 minutes a sermon, which is kind of long. I could tell that this is a church that digs the long sermon, right? Um, Nigel's sermon was like an hour and nine minutes long. Now, I have never gone for an hour and nine minutes before. But with your help today, I'm going to leave here a winner. And you're going to have a strong emotional connection to that seat you're in. So uh, with that, I'm going to open us up in prayer, and, uh, and we'll dive in. Um, Lord God, uh, these are your people, and I pray that uh, you would speak to them this morning. God, I pray that the, the words that are heard this morning are yours, and they're not mine. Uh, Holy Spirit, um, be at the center of this. May this honor you and be worshipful to you. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice and your redemption of these people for your glory. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. All right. So um, we're, we're in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 today, and there's, there's a whole lot of stuff that's in there. And uh, as we just heard, um, and because we're going through this series on the, on the Holy Spirit, you know that, um, that this is about the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of the believer 
and who imparts to that believer certain gifts, and those gifts are to be used with a specific purpose. Now, if I had a month of Sundays, I could dive into 1 Corinthians 12 with you, but I don't have that much time. We're going to look at one verse, just one verse, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We're going to drill down on one thing this morning. It, it, you're, you're in your life groups, you're going to look at, at, at these spiritual gifts a little bit more, and you're going to be asked the question, what is your spiritual gift, and how are you supposed to use that? Um, and, and you're going to go into deeper uh, territory with your life groups uh, in this passage of Scripture. But if you don't know what your spiritual gift is for, it doesn't matter if you know what it is. Your spiritual gift has a purpose, and you need to know what that purpose is, and it is for the common good. Now, you, you don't need a, a stack of commentators to tell you what that means. You don't need me to parse any Greek verbs for you like I know any. Like, you don't need a ton of information. This verse is very straightforward. It is for the common good. And I'm going to spend an hour and nine minutes talking about how it's for the common good. For the common good. Um, when I was 18, I uh, joined the Army after high school. And, uh, and, and what I experienced in, in my time in the military... Um, forever changed me. Uh, I served from 1996 to 1999. Um, the, the army for me was a completely different experience than, than I'd ever had, obviously, before and, and even since. And, and, and one of them, the main things that, that has changed me is that I was immersed in a culture where all of these barriers that separate us now from other people just fell away. A culture where, where race fell away, where uh, divisions of status, you know, money, whatever. Like, we were a bunch of kids, and, and, and we were all green, according to the Army. I mean, I, I went from growing up in southern Arizona, where I was a part of a very white neighborhood, who went to a very white school and a part of a very white church, and all of a sudden, I'm thrust into the Army, and I'm serving with Hispanics and black guys and Puerto Ricans and, and, and all sorts of people from all different walks of life, and we all look different. We all have different backgrounds, and there are kids from rural parts of the United States and people from the Bronx and from L.A. and people who are from wealthier backgrounds and dirt poor backgrounds, and we all come together, and all of a sudden... We're, we're eating together, we're sleeping together, we're, we're jumping out of planes, we're shooting guns, we are, we, we're doing all sorts of things together. We're together constantly. We're, we're, we're sweating together doing PT in the morning, and when we get off work, we're, we're hanging out together, and on weekends, we're together. We're going to the beach together. Like, all of the time, together. Together, all of the time. And then there's things that just sort of fall away from you when you spend this much time with people. It was a unique environment. It was, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing to be a part of. I remember my first Thanksgiving at, um, at my duty station. I was stationed in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and um, I had a buddy who kind of grew up in the area, and he invited me to go uh, to his, aunt, his aunt's house for Thanksgiving dinner, Sean McFarland. McFarland was a black guy, and he invited me over to his aunt's house, and I remember pulling into the driveway, and his aunt, who was about this tall, she comes up to me, 
And she looks at me and she gives me this big hug. And she says to me, have you ever had any soul food, baby? <laughs> and I said, no, no, ma'am. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, no, ma'am, uh, but I'm excited about having it. Um, and so she said, well, you go in there, you watch football, and in a little while, you're going to have some soul food. And so I said, all right. So um, again, I'm, I'm this kid from very, very white America, and, and I walk into the living room, and there's one spot in the living room available, and it's in the, in the, the middle of the couch. And, uh, and, and so I'm like, you know, everybody's watching football, so I'm just like, you know, what's up? And, and I go and I sit in the middle of the couch and, and I look to my right, I look to my left, and I felt like I was sitting between like two offensive linemen from the Carolina Panthers. <laughs> These guys were huge. And I'm looking around the room and I'm saying to myself, I've never been the only white person in a room before. This is weird. But I remember how they treated me. And I remember the, the love that they had for me. And they looked at me, and they saw this kid who was 3,000 miles away from home on Thanksgiving. I remember what that felt like. Um, it was just, it was a different environment. And, and all of these barriers that, that would have divided us, had we not been in this environment, would have kept us from knowing each other. Um, there was this one night where um, uh, a buddy, uh, Sloniger, uh, Harris, and Johnson. I don't remember any of their first names. <laughs> There's a weird thing about the military. You don't talk to each other. Like, but I, I remember their last name. I remember uh, Sloniger said, we're, we're going to a nightclub tonight. I said, okay, let's go. So, uh, so we go uh, to, to this nightclub, and one of the things about military towns is that there's kind of a love-hate relationship between the military and the town, sometimes for good reason. But we, we walked into this nightclub, and... We looked around and realized, you know, from the, from the haircuts, we were probably the only Joes in there. And we're having a, a decent time, and, 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 and there's this young lady who uh, is starting making eyes at, at my friend Harris. Again, Harris is a black guy. And, uh, and her boyfriend didn't particularly like that. So he comes over to, to Harris and, uh, and uh, um, unfortunately uses a negative racial term, and um, Harris knocked him to the floor. So we got kicked out of the, the nightclub. The bouncers come, and they drag us out of the club, and, uh, and we're in the parking lot thinking about what we're going to do next. And then we noticed that the guy that, that kind of started it, he got back into the nightclub. And then he comes out, but he's not alone. And I don't know how many people came with him, but I lost count at about 10. Now, I had never been in a fight before. How many of you have ever, ever had one of those dreams where you're, you're fighting somebody in your dream and you're swinging as hard as you can, but you're missing? Or, or you're swinging and, it, and it's hitting the person, but it's making no damage. It's like you're throwing pillows. You ever had those dreams? Some of you have? Okay, don't psychoanalyze me yet. Just yet. So I had always had those dreams. And so here's this group of people. There's four of us, and they're coming with the intent of hurting us. And some guy I've never seen before, I don't have a problem with, is coming at me angrily, and I didn't wait. I balled up my fist, and I swung as hard as I possibly could, and I connected, and I saw his jaw go back, and I saw him hit the ground. And for a split second, I was like, yes! I didn't have long, though, because I got hit in the back of the head, and I went to the ground. And then when I looked up, there was two guys standing over me, and the guy that I knocked down is now standing up, 
and my ninja instincts said, roly-poly. <laughs> so I curled up in a ball, and I waited for them to stop kicking me. So uh, it, it, it took a little bit of time, and uh, they, they finally decided that I had enough. And, uh, and for some reason, when and I got off the ground, I was, it was in the middle of the street. I don't know how I got there, but I, I went uh, and, I, and I jumped in my buddy's car, because he was way over there, and, and Harris was way over here, and Marlon was over, or uh, Johnson was way over there, and, and somebody was, was stomping on him. And I got in his car, and I drove up to them, and I would get in the car. Uh, Harris grabbed Johnson, threw him in the back. On the way back to the barracks, uh, Johnson started throwing up profusely. He was, he was unresponsive. He has blood all over his face. And we drove to the Army uh, hospital called Womack on Fort Bragg. And uh, we get him checked in. And here comes an MP to take our statement. And, uh, and we knew uh, that the next day we're going to be standing in front of the colonel. We're probably in some hot water. Um, the MP leaves, I, I, uh, the, the adrenaline is gone, I'm finally feeling the pain of what I've just experienced and I decided to go get checked out. I had a broken arm. And, uh, and so they, they banished me up and we, we stayed with Johnson all night till we found out he had a, a really, really bad concussion. Um, yeah, one of his teeth was broken off and it went through his cheek. Um, and so we, we, we waited until we found out he was gonna be okay and, and then we went back to uh, to, to our unit, and we had missed morning formation. We had to talk to our first sergeant. We had to get our uniform on and go stand in front of the colonel. And, and the colonel, to, to our surprise, sort of slapped us on the back and said, you've stuck together. I'm proud of you for that. You're not in trouble. Okay. Uh, it took Johnson a couple days. He was okay. He was fine. I, I spent you know, the next six weeks in a cast. Um, Here's the thing, and I'm probably not supposed to say this. As a good Christian man, uh, that was one of the best nights of my life. That sounds weird, right? That, that shouldn't be something that I would be proud of. See, see what happened that night was a distillation of, of three years of time spent with a group of guys. And we found out that we would do anything for each other. We were a part of a community that did everything together, that lived together in such close proximity that we would sweat together, that we would bleed together, that we would fight for one another. Now, it was in a very unholy way. I make no mistakes about that, and I don't long for, for those type of days in that way again. I don't want to be in a fist fight again. I don't like the violence of that night. But what I found out about that night was that I was a part of a group. I was a part of a tribe that would go to great lengths to preserve and protect one another, and we felt responsible to one another and responsible for one another. And, and that... I have not experienced ever again that, that level of connection with one another. Now, I, I got out of the army and I went to a Christian college because 
I was a Christian and I did love Jesus, but there were elements about that community in the army that I wanted to experience in the church in a holy and righteous way, in a good way. I wanted to experience what it was like to be connected to other people, not in the way that we were in the military, but in the, in the, within the church where there was a purpose And we would come together and, 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 and be connected in, in such a deep way. And there, there's a book written by uh, Sebastian Younger called Tribe. And um, uh, Younger is a, a, um, uh, a newspaper reporter. He, uh, he spent time embedded with, uh, with, with soldiers in Iraq and in Afghanistan. He spent time in, in, in Bosnia and in, in Sarajevo when that war was going on and and he, he writes this book, Tribe, and it's about the, these experiences of people who've gone through these sorts of things. How soldiers coming back from combat, although they don't miss the horrors of the battlefield, long for the connection that they had with the soldiers they served with. And they're coming back into a society that's so individualistic, and, it, and it's, it's so hard for them. That, that so many of these guys would almost rather be back in combat than living in this individualistic society which they're forced to live in now. He, he talks about people in, in, in war-torn Sarajevo, how, how when the bombs were falling and, and tanks were blasting through buildings and snipers were killing people on the street and these people were eking out lives together, huddled together, growing crops in the, you know, the sides of streets. They're, they're, they're doing whatever they can to survive this war. And, and although when he goes back and he interviews them, they, they, they hated the war but they missed the connection they had to the people when they were in it. He, he talks about people who, who survived natural disasters, hurricanes and, and earthquakes, and, and what it's like for these people after the, 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 the quake has stopped, and they begin to sort of dig out of the rubble, and they come together, and they work together to help one another, and all of a sudden, the barriers of, of, of class and status and race and all of this stuff just falls by the wayside, and people come together to work together to piece life back together. But something happens is when it's pieced back together, all those barriers go back up. He spends a good amount of time talking about um, tribal peoples either in Africa or looking back at Native American tribes. And one of the things he points out is how, how Europeans coming over to, to the, to the uh, North America, you know, 300 years ago or so, and, and all of a sudden you've got these, these civilized peoples clashing up against 3,000 miles of wilderness and tribes that have lived in, like, Stone Age-type tribes for, like, the last 15,000 years or so. Like, and all of a sudden, these two cultures are clashing together. And, and there's this thing that people noticed about that time. Is that there was this, uh, this, this movement of people that would leave their culture and join the other culture. And it wasn't Native Americans joining white culture. It was people in white culture joining Native American culture. Uh, Benjamin Franklin wrote about it in, an, um, in a letter to a friend. He says, when an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language, language, and habituated to our customs. Yet if he goes to see his relations and makes one Indian ramble with them, there is no persuading him to ever to return. On the other hand, white captives who were liberated from the Indians were almost impossible to keep at home. 
Though ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and take the first good opportunity of escaping again into the woods. Because they experienced a type of culture in which they had purpose and connection, which they felt responsibility to and for one another, and it made them feel connected. Deeply connected to one another. Younger describes the word tribe or defines it as this. The earliest and most basic definition of community, of tribe, would be a group of people that you would both help feed and help defend. And he notes that um, with the, the advent of, of, of all these technologies that we have in modern society, all, all of the medical technologies and science and, and, and medicine, all of these things that we have, that as we grow in affluence and as we grow in, in, in knowledge and, and all this stuff, we become more and more individualistic. And he writes this, first agriculture and then industry change two fundamental things about the human experience. The accumulation of personal property allowed people to make more and more individualistic choices about their lives, and their choices unavoidably diminished group efforts toward a common good. In a society modernized, people found themselves able to live independently from any communal group. A person living in a modern city or a suburb can, for the first time in history, go through an entire day or an entire life, mostly encountering complete strangers. They can be surrounded by others, but feel deeply and dangerously alone. Now, you would think that in a modern society, life would get better, right? That's the idea. More science, more technology, more medicine. Life is supposed to get better. More affluence, more material possessions. Life is supposed to get better. Now, it's hard to measure happiness, but mental health is easier to measure. And across all of these, these cross-cultural studies, when you begin to examine them, when it comes to mental health and affluence, as affluence goes on the rise, so do mental deterioration. Clinical depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, loneliness. As a society gains in affluence, the, the mental things that come along with it grow as well. Why is that? As we disconnect further and further and further apart from one another. Isn't it obvious? See, the, the truth is, we were made for community. And we were made for connection. I disagree with Younger on a, on a couple points. The first is that um, he believes that it's, that it's an evolutionary process that creates this in human beings. This longing for connection with one another. He is not yet a believer of Jesus. I see the answer in the gospel. And the gospel tells me that in the beginning, God, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this, this Trinitarian being that's living communally within himself, different persons coming together and living in such a way we, we, we struggle to understand it, but it is a very communal, connected, relational God. And this God creates. 
And he creates human beings in his image and in his likeness. That means that there are things that are true about God that are true about me and they're true about you. And if you have some deep longing within your heart, chances are the reason that deep longing is within there is because that is where what you were created to be. And it comes from God because you were made in his image and you were made in his likeness. But like our first parents, we turn away from that communal God and we choose ourselves. And we we choose the individualistic route. We reject him. We choose us. We choose our way. We choose what we want. And the result is the fall. We fall away from him. And that image of him that is in us is scarred and it's marred and it's broken. It's still there. We still long for connection. We still desire connection, but it's broken. And we are unable to have it for very long. But this is what we were made for. The people of God were supposed to be tribal. I'm going to prove it to you. So um, the people of God, they're they're slaves in Egypt. And God uh, ransoms his people and he brings them out of slavery. And he takes them out into the wilderness to teach them about who he is and about who they are. And one of the things that, that we see is, is about how they're supposed to interrelate with one another and how they're supposed to connect with one another. And those barriers, they're, they're supposed to come down. One of, one of the things that he points out in, in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, is that there, there should be no poor among you. You're, you're going into the promised land. It's a land that I'm going to give you. There's going to be cities there that you didn't build. There's going to be vineyards there that you didn't plant. There's going to be everything that's there. It's going to be for you. And there's enough to go around. Do, do you remember the, the manna in the, in the wilderness? How God chose to provide food and sustenance for his people. They would go out in the morning and there's all this bread looking stuff laying on the ground. And God told them, you collect what you need for one day. You don't hoard it. You don't need to. I'll provide it for you. It's going to be there. You don't need to hoard. And so he says in in Deuteronomy, there should be no poor among you. There's supposed to be enough to go around for everybody. He says that if there is somebody who needs, you give to them. You loan to them. And you don't charge interest and there's something called the sabbatical year, that every seven, seven years, all debts are erased. You will not have a culture in which the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poor, stuck in debt and in slavery to one another. There should be no poor among you. You should be responsible to one another, and you're responsible for one another. And it's not about you accumulating wealth at the cost of your neighbor. He makes provision for for the stranger, for the foreigner who comes in, provision for the orphan, for the widow. If if you have a field, you don't harvest every grain of wheat. If you have a vineyard, you don't harvest every grape. You leave some for those people to come and collect and feed themselves. You provide a way that nobody goes hungry. You take responsibility for one another. And there's this idea that, that the community... The, the, the protection of, of the community, the, that it's a sacred act. You put the people above yourself. 
You're responsible to feed them, but you're also responsible to protect them. One of the other passages in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, talks about if you have a stubborn or rebellious child. A stubborn or rebellious child that refused to listen and they refuse to be a part of the community. They refuse to, to take responsibility. They refuse to grow up. You take that child out of the city and you stone them to death. Does that seem barbaric? Is it as barbaric as a world in which kids grow up stubborn, rebellious? There's something wrong. There's something where they're going off the rails and nobody says anything and nobody does anything until they go into a classroom and they start shooting it up. Which is more barbaric? They understood that the community was more important than the individual, even if that individual was your own child. They understood to protect one another. They, they would need to stop idolatry from happening. Uh, Deuteronomy um, 13. There's a place where it talks about how if, if your, your own brother comes to you, if it's your child that comes to you, if it's your own spouse that comes to you and tries to entice you to worship another god, take them out of the city and stone them to death pretty harsh. Deuteronomy 7, that there's going to be tribes and cultures that you come against, and you are to devote every single man, woman, and child of that tribe to destruction. You don't allow them to live. The reason behind all of this is that if you let them live, they will persuade you to follow their gods. You'll turn your back on the one true God. God will turn his back on you. And what happens? You see this throughout the rest of the Old Testament. They didn't listen to God. God turned his back on them. Foreign powers came in, killed them, and carried their children off to slavery. That there is this, this element of, of community living, of tribal living, that you, you preserve, you protect, you fight for your people. You put them above yourself to such great lengths, to such great lengths. We see this in the pages of the New Testament. You look at Acts 2. You have this new forming, forming church body, these, these, these Christians coming together, and, and they have needs. And so what do people do? People sell their stuff to provide for one another. There's nothing that they won't do to take care of one another, to feed one another, to protect one another. This, this growing idea, we hear it. Um, Paul says this in... Um, Romans 12, 9 through 13, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And he says this, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In Philippians 2, 1 through 3, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. 
God's people are meant to be tribal. We are meant to take responsibility for one another to such an extent that you would sell your stuff to feed somebody else. That you would put your life and the life of your family on the line to protect your tribe. That there is this idea, it is not about you. It is about what you give. It is about taking responsibility. See, and this is the thing that has fallen apart since the beginning. A serpent shows up to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Somebody in that conversation should have taken responsibility. Instead, they believe a lie, and God comes along and he says, Children, where are you? What have you done? Who told you you were naked? And Eve says, It was the serpent. And Adam says, It was the woman that you gave me. Where's the responsibility? They have two kids. One kills the other. God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? What does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible. See, this is where we've come in in our culture and our society is that we, we have become materialistic and consumeristic and we have developed lives that are built around our own happiness at the cost of everyone else. We have been taught by our culture that you are the center of the universe and it's about you. And and our churches, unfortunately, have embraced that. The people of God were meant to be tribal. We were meant to be responsibility, take responsibility for one another. Stand in the gap for one another. Fight for one another. Bleed for one another. Go hungry for one another. This is what we were meant for. See, I I, I disagree with with Younger on another point. He, He believes that the only way a modern civilization like ours can have a taste for that kind of, of connection, that kind of culture, is for us to experience real hardship. For us to either have to go to war or for war to come to us. For us to have to experience a natural disaster on some level for us to be able to to connect like that again. But even if that happens, it will only be for a short time and then the barriers and the walls that divide us will go back up. I disagree with him on that point because I look back at the gospel. And the gospel says, yes, there is this, this communal God and he has created us to be communal beings with one another. And yes, we fall, we fell. We have disobeyed him. We have walked away from him. But the two most beautiful words in the English language, but God. But God. In the fullness of time, Jesus, the Son of God, enters into our story. And he lives this selfless life, laying down his life, serving people, giving up himself. He had no pillow on which to rest his head. He gave up everything, home, family, everything. He demonstrated what this should look like. And then he goes and he sacrificially gives his life so that 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 enmity between us and God can be broken down. And the God the Father raises him up from the dead to give us newness of life. And he ascends into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding on our behalf. But he sends us the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit, God himself comes and he lives inside of us, enabling us to do something we've never been able to do. Connect with God and connect with one another. It is not impossible. We can experience it. We have to stop living out of ourselves and start living out of the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do it. We can have community. We can have connection with one another. We can experience what it's like to feel somebody being responsible for us and caring for us as we are responsible and caring for someone else. We can experience what that's like. And we desperately need it. And sometimes we are given a glimpse of the fact that we do desperately want it. We want to be connected to one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you are a believer, you have God, the Holy Spirit, living inside of you. And the Holy Spirit has given you a gift, something that he intends for you to use. Not for you, but for one another. What he has given you, he wants you to give to them. And what you have, you are to give to them. You are supposed to give this gift to one another. You are supposed to take responsibility for one another with this gift. It is the gift that empowers you to connect with one another. There's one story in the Old Testament that, that I think put, puts perfect clarity to this. In Joshua chapter 7, we read about a man named Achan. The, 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 the children of God, they're crossing into the promised land. They, they crossed over the Jordan River, and there's this one city that sort of stands in their way, the city of Jericho. And God says, I'm going to give you that city. I'm going to hand it over to you, but everything in it belongs to me. Everything in it belongs to me. Don't take anything for yourself. Well, that happens. They, they defeat the, the city of Jericho, and, and Achan is one of those, those soldiers who goes in, and he sees some loot, and he takes it for himself, and he buries it beneath his own tent. What happens is that God sees what, what goes on, and the next time the Israelites go into battle, people die. People die because Achan put himself above the community. He buried the loot beneath his tent. Jesus tells another story called the parable of the talents that's that's kind of similar. It's about this rich man who who calls his three servants to him and he gives each one of his his servants talents or certain gifts or or money in in order for them to invest what he's given to them. And the first two servants, they go and they invest it and they, they double. The third guy buries it. And when the master comes back and he calls his servants to him, he says to the third guy, you wicked, lazy servant. Now let me ask you something. If the Holy Spirit is living in you and he has given you a spiritual gift and you're not using it, what do you think that says to God? What do you think that says to God? That gift is not for you. 
It's for one another. Can you really selfishly hold on to that? Can you really be a Christian and follow God for years and years and say, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have a spiritual gift. I never really thought about it before. Legitimately, can you do that? Church, you're responsible for one another. You are. You're, you're responsible for one another and to one another for the things that you do with the things that you don't do. You're responsible. You are not Achan. You are not the third wicked and lazy servant. You are a people of God, redeemed by God for his purpose. You need to own that. and Step up and take responsibility. I was talking to my brother this morning and I asked him about um, one of, one of the, the members of this church and, who I had met before and asked him you know, how he was doing and, and where he was. And he said, well, he, he occasionally shows up, not really connected anymore, doesn't want to be a part of the life group. And, and, he, and he says, well, you know, things are going okay for me. We're, we're doing okay. So there is this belief that he, he equates the fact that he's doing okay to not being a part of a church. When, I, when things go wrong, then I'll, then I'll be a part of the church. So who's that about? It's about him. And it's not about you. It's not about you. And you're his tribe, or at least you're supposed to be. We, we, we are in a difficult, difficult place as, as American Christians. Our whole lives... But we have been forced to drink from, from this idea, this, this lie that, that all of life is about us. And we take that lie into the church. And we sit there and we think, I want better worship. I want better preaching. I want a better building. I want better programs. Guys, I believe that, that you could be a light in this valley. And all of those things that I just mentioned they are not going to make a difference to the people who are out there who are dying in need of Jesus. They're not. But, but what if? What if they encountered you and they encountered a people that were so connected and so responsible for one another and so loving and caring and just connected to one another? What would they do if they encountered that? Because for some of them, many of them, they've never tasted anything like that. And at the very deepest core of their being, it's what they want, it's what they long for. See, the other thing that I, and I'm going to close with this. The other thing that I want you to see is, is the very last verse in 1 Corinthians 12. He writes this, and I will show you a still more excellent way. The book of 1 Corinthians doesn't end with you getting a gift. Congratulations. The book continues on, and 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter of love. It's where over and over and over again, Paul talks about what love is. See, you have the Holy Spirit. You've been given a gift by the Spirit to do something for the common good of this body, but this body exists to be light in this valley to these people who need Jesus. 
The, the, the thing that stands between you and that is you deciding to take responsibility. It's up to you. I'm going to close. Uh, I said I'd close with that. I'm not. I'm going to close with this. Just kidding, because uh, it's only 11.08. I've got plenty of time. I forgot what I was going to say. Hold on. Um, I, I am not one of you. I don't live in Chelan. I live in Salem, Oregon. We, we are Christian brothers and sisters, and, and we're going to spend a life, uh, just an eternity together in heaven, and, and that's going to be awesome. I, I, I jumped at the chance to speak to you this morning um, because of my brother. Because my brother loves you very much. And in ways you don't know, he has laid down his life for you. And I know that the best gift my brother can ever receive is that one day he's going to stand before the Father and he's going to present this church. Does he get to, to present a holy, beautiful bride before her bridegroom, Jesus Christ? holy and blameless before him who took responsibility for the city of Shalan. That's what I want him to be able to present. That would be so awesome. That's what I want for my brother. That's what I want for you. I, I yell a lot. It's just who I am. Please hear my heart. Responsibility. Responsibility. I'm going to close in prayer. Um, as I said, I love my brother very much. In the time that we have after prayer, um, for $20, I'll tell you any embarrassing stories you'd like to know from that. <laughs> Wake up. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, God, I lift up this, this, this church to you. Lord Jesus, you died for these people. You love these people. You want them to have the fullness of life. But it's not a fullness of life that just comes when they're together with you in heaven. It's a fullness of life that they can have now in you, living off the power of the Holy Spirit. God, living inside of them, enabling them to connect to one another and love one another and be responsible for one another and take responsibility for this, this valid and these people that need you so much. God, I pray you would pour out your spirit. Pour out your spirit on these people. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.